I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico. And I'm Dean Dalloff. And this week we are joined by Sarah New. She was on the show quite a long time in the past now to talk about her work with Church Clarity, which is a pretty wild institution that if you don't know about, you should definitely know about. <laughs> it's a really great thing, and you should listen to that episode. But this time around, we're here to talk to Sarah about all kinds of stuff. Um, we're going to talk to her about her communist great aunt. We're going to talk to her about labor organizing. We'll talk about what the heck's going on at church. Um, it's really great. Uh, <laughs> there's just so much that you could talk to Sarah about for a very long time, I think, and, uh, keep, uh, pulling more and more great stuff out of, uh, out of her and her work. Um, you can find all of her stuff in the show notes to this, uh, episode. Um, we've linked her church and, uh, where you can find like her writing and stuff like that. Uh, before we go over to that interview, though, a few housekeeping notes. Matt, um, do you want to tell people where we've been and where we'll be? Well, we've been in our homes <laughs> uh, for the last nine months, and that's where we're probably going to be for a long time still. But Probably did, nine more. Yeah, probably nine more. But digitally, we've been everywhere, around the world and back. Um, <laughs> this past week, we were on um, our friend Ember's podcast. She is the religious educator at a really neat uh, faith community called Fourth Universal Society in New York City. Um, anyways, we're on their podcast, and uh, we talked about the Magnificast and socialism and all of that good stuff. Wow, it's great. Uh, if you go scroll through our timeline, you can definitely find the tweet. We'll probably tweet it out again a few times. You can't miss it. If it's on our timeline, you're going to get it in your feed. You're, <laughs> you're following us on Twitter. We know it already. Um, apart from that, though, we are doing something kind of out of the ordinary. On December 11th, we're doing a Facebook Live event with the Fourth Universal Society, um, and that'll be a weird experience. I don't know. I, myself, have never been on a Facebook Live, and I guess this will be it for us to talk about the Magnificast and socialism. I don't know. It's Dean, a what big you... break. Yeah, it'll be great. It's going to be fantastic. I mean, for sure. Um, but it, uh, just a new, just a new experience. Wow. In this pandemic doing something new. What a thing. It's like you hear this podcast, uh, once a week in audio, but imagine just imagine for a moment, if there was also a, a sort of poorly produced video quality, uh, to go along with it, poorly produced on our ends. Cause it's going to be in my extremely small apartment using <laughs> That's right. my one, my one webcam that does not have great resolution, but boy, will you be able to hear us and see us at the same time? 
It'll be incredible. Uh, we'll be more alive than ever on Facebook. Maybe you can ask <laughs> us a question live. It's just going to be bonkers. I am thinking about it right now and feeling a lot of anxiety about it, honestly. But anyways, that's December 11th <laughs> at 7 p.m. Eastern time uh, at the 4th Universalist Society Facebook page. Um, and uh, I think you can actually get in their Zoom room. Maybe it's not on Facebook Live. God, I couldn't tell you now. But anyways, you can sign up. There's a link. uh there's a link in the show notes, but there's also a link to it uh, on our Twitter page. So go check that out. All right. Enough rambling about how terrified and scared we are about being on Zoom, talking to people. And let's talk to Sarah New about church. This week, we have Sarah New back with us. Uh, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, um, it's so good to have you back on the podcast. Um, you've been doing a lot of really cool stuff, um, involved in some really neat projects that we're excited to hear about. I think last time we talked to you was uh, when you were involved with Church Clarity, but um, so many things have happened since then. Um, so maybe uh, could you just take a second and tell us uh, a little bit about who you are and what you're doing? Yeah, so I um, currently work as the executive director of a church in Brooklyn. It's Progressive, non-denominational church for for NYC. Um, I've been doing that for the past year, and I also work as a freelance writer and journalist over the past few years. So I, I left Church Clarity formally uh, January of this year. Um, and yeah, and I also am a member of DSA's Religion and Socialism Working Group here and there, so... That's great. Um, you definitely are are always busy, it seems, with some extremely cool projects. And we're excited to talk to you about all those things, um, especially maybe about your uh, work around churches and labor organizing, some stuff that you've been writing about lately. But before we get that far, it'd be great to hear you talk a bit more about a really phenomenal autobiographical essay that you wrote at The Revealer called The Secret Life of My Communist Great Aunt, a hagiography. And in the essay, you explore some connections between a fascinating part of your family history and your own identity. Um, it's one of the best things that I read this year. Uh, there's so much that we want to talk to you about, but I just like can't wait. I got to hear more about this great essay. Can you walk us through it and maybe what writing that essay was like for you? Thank you for, uh, yeah, your kind remarks. It's probably the piece of writing I've done that's the most meaningful, um, not just because it's like personally meaningful, but I think I tried to make it like a good actual good piece of writing. I think sometimes with journalism, you're just trying to get content out there. So I, it was a lot of pretty workshopped and stuff like that. Um, the It started, um, you know, the essay is generally about my search for my great aunt. Um, so she's the predominant protagonist in it, but I, I kind of play a, a kind of important role just in terms of trying me trying to understand her. And I would say, you know, my... I've known about this great aunt who was kind of black sheep in my family, who was a communist, who was killed by the state essentially when she was about in her thirties and my mother was 11. But it, you know, it was just like a curiosity, a family legend. And I only began to just kind of press in a little bit more um, due to a couple things. One was traveling Southeast Asia a number of years ago, a few years ago, and just being struck by, I was, I think, Vietnam and Cambodia at the time and being struck by the history of communism in those regions and how they intersected with like anti-imperial and anti-colonial movements or that they, they essentially were the anti-imperial, anti-colonial movements. And then just remember like, oh, yeah, I have this aunt who I guess was involved in that. You know, the communist history of Malaysia is much more marginal and less discussed due to complicated factors. Um, so that kind of put her in the back of my head. And then also, you know, in the process of coming out, 
to my parents as queer kind of made me think a lot about, um, you know, how can I attach myself to my family lineage in a way that doesn't depend on the approval of my parents or the gatekeeping nature of my parents? Is there a way I can feel connected to my ancestry and my lineage um, kind of directly without having to go through parents as an intermediary? Because, you know, they're often the language translators, they're the family lore keepers, the historical memory um, folks. So as most kids of immigrants are. So the, um, I, so I, I think about two years ago, I started uh, just researching, reading about the history of communism in the region, and then actually getting to meet um, some of my great aunt's former comrades, some of whom knew her a little bit well, some of whom just knew of her, and some who knew her decently well. There were mostly like people in their 70s to 80s, I want to say, maybe at youngest 60s. Um, a lot of them joined the communist movement um, when they were in high school. Uh, similar to my great aunt, she, I think, became radicalized more formally in university and was part of a sort of very, you know, she, she, my family it was, was and so is a little bit fairly wealthy. So she was kind of came into it more for intellectual um, reasons as opposed to most uh, Chinese who came into it more for like class reasons. Um, and she was this kind of like quiet, radical intellectual that led a double life, essentially, my family. And we only really knew she was communist fully. I and mean, we always had a suspicions. And when we found out, she died in the newspaper. Um, so my, my essay is kind of my, about my search to understand her and her motivations, like what, what caused her to like, you know, essentially give up her family for this. But at the same time, um, how she tried to navigate the worlds of both her political beliefs and convictions and the bourgeois family she came from and the tensions between both from the best I can deduce, obviously, from interviews, research, and also her, her like gravestone. Um, so yeah, it was a very emotional experience to visit her grave, to meet her comrades, and just to be, just to kind of realize that this was her second family or maybe her real family where she was perhaps truly herself. And that she kept from her family. And obviously, as most queer people, that's something, a theme you can relate to. So, yeah, that's, I think, more or less what the essay was about. It's such a cool thing. I mean, you, you do great work, um, you know, just really digging into that history and, and figuring it all out. And, you know, meeting people and talking to people. And it's really exciting to kind of go through it all with you in the essay. Um, we'll make sure we, we link it in the show notes and, and stuff like that. But um, I guess, like, what is what does the essay, I guess, do for you, this side of it? You know, you've written it, you've done this research. Um, how do you feel about the whole thing now that it's kind of out there and uh, materialized in something like an essay? I think I felt, like, plagued by it for getting towards the end. I've been working on it for almost a year. Um, I didn't just want it to be done. I felt I had this kind of obligation to almost my, to her in a weird way. Like, I have this photo of her on my, like, and my grandparents and what I kind of dubbed my ancestral altar. Um, and now that I feel like I've, I've, I feel at peace now, like I've done, I fulfilled my duty. I, at least I feel like I have, like her memory will not be gone. Um, because I think if it weren't for the fact of me finding her grave, most likely the knowledge of where her grave was would have more or less died with my last remaining uncle who's like almost seen now. Um, so yeah, but I think it's, it's, I feel at peace and it, it but also, knowing so much about her kind of brought her back to life. So it has been a kind of resurrectory process as well. So, you know, depending on your beliefs and ancestors in, within Chinese culture, this kind of belief in ancestral communication, 
Um, and I was always taught to, you know, not do that because it was pagan and not Christian. But I've recently started to kind of embrace it and I'm thinking about my great aunt in that context of as ancestors, I might ask for prayer or ask for blessing or ask for guidance as she sort of like occupied a more center stage in that camp. Uh, it's so interesting to to hear all that. Um, I mean, the way that you talk about it in the uh, article is great because it, it is such a like... Um it's navigating so many things, not just navigating the history of communism um, in uh, Malaysia, but also navigating your own kind of experience as a person in the world, just trying to figure out who you are and who your family is. Uh, I feel like I have like so many questions for how all this goes together, but could you talk a little bit about the, um, how like the Christianity and communism piece fits and maybe uh, that ancestral lineage that you're bringing in too? Um, how have you been able to like navigate all these things kind of um, intersecting and coming up against or with one another? Yeah, I mean, my great aunt was not a Christian. She's most likely like some kind of um, not Buddhist. The other thing, just can't remember exactly what's off the top of my head. Um, Taoist, I would say, um, most likely. And for the most part, communism in Malaysia was like Chinese movement, not Malay, not uh, it didn't involve other ethnicities or other religions a whole lot. Um, for me, how I navigate, how I think about all that as a Christian, I suppose. Um, well, I guess when it comes to ancestral stuff, you know, one of the turning points for me was I was at a conference called, the acronym is Penatum, but if you want to Google it, it's like Pacific Asian North American, Asian American Women's Theology and Ministry Conference that has essentially all these like badass Asian aunties who are like the first in their field, essentially, like the first Asian woman Hebrew biblical scholar and, and every generation below them. And they began the conference by saying, we're going to take a moment now to like pray. And to begin, we're going to have a moment of silence to remember and thank our ancestors in this moment. And I remember having this kind of chill through my body because this is the very thing I was taught not to do. Um, like if you go to a Chinese cemetery in Malaysia, there's a sign that says do not, uh, a Christian Chinese cemetery, there's a sign that will say do not like light any joss sticks or incense sticks is forbidden in the cemetery because that's one of the markers of ancestral veneration. So they were doing this moment of silence and I was like, oh, wow, I guess we're, we're doing this. And it just, but I started thinking like, you know, this is not that different from Catholic veneration of saints. If I believe that the saints of the church are still, I can communicate with them. Why not um, the people who have formed me, maybe biologically, but also spiritually in some way? Um, so at least that's how I kind of put it together. Damn. Well, it's really cool. I'm glad that you did put it together. And uh, I'm glad that you wrote this thing. And uh, I'm really happy to have read it. Uh, I think I, I think I'd like to ask you about a thousand more things about it, but um, I also don't want to neglect the other cool stuff that you've done lately. Um, back in October, you published an essay called Why Pastors Sh Should Support Labor Organizing, and it's a really instructive piece for people doing church work. I mean, it's, it's an instructive piece for anybody, but, you know, for people in the church, I think it's really helpful. So uh, would you mind just, uh, I mean, turning the corner here a bit and telling us about this other essay that you wrote uh, for those who might not have read it? It's, yeah, it's a pretty simple piece, um, you know, talking about, I don't know, it seems very commonsensical to me, but I, I understand how some people might might be harder to grasp. Um, you know, the way I like to think about it is like, as clergy, I, I guess I'm sort of clergy, people come to us often with like, you know, psychological and spiritual needs. Mm -hmm. um, and as clergy, we realize that we do what we can, but obviously you need the help of a doctor or a therapist to like, you know, round out the full picture 
And so I really don't see the work of a labor organizer that differently. Um, you know, pastors closure do what we can for like, you know, frontline relief, so to speak, and guidance. But the real work that needs to happen when people come to us, especially about prayer, prayer requests for about work-related things, and sometimes their requests aren't necessarily articulated in terms of work. They'll just say, I'm really stressed. Can you pray for my stress? But you dig deeper, you know, it's stress about money, it's stress about being overworked or underworked um, or abusive boss or coworkers who are toxic, you know, what have you. And so, you know, I, I think what I, what I started doing is I, I started saying like, you know, um, I will pray for you, I'll help you, I'll do all this stuff. But have you talked to your coworkers about your problems? Are you part of a union? Um, you know, I unfortunately don't have time to like do, uh, I wish we had some sort of like, I don't know, labor workplace organizing boot camp in our church, perhaps in the future. Um, but just kind of pointing them in direction because I know I can only do so much. I'll, I'll, ideally, there would be an organizer in the workplace to stand up for my congregants when they're dealing with really hard things and they can't go through it alone. That's so great. I mean, it's uh, like you were just saying, it is really fascinating that pastors, um, you know, they think of themselves and us who go to church think of them also as people who can guide you through all kinds of things, like really, really challenging things in your life, um, psychological things, spiritual things, and even uh, material issues too. But yeah, to add labor to that picture just seems like it makes a lot of sense, but uh, is not <laughs> not uh, necessarily on the radar of every pastor. Um, can you uh, maybe help us think through some of those tensions? Like, why is it that pastors don't think of that? And why is it that people who go to church also don't uh, maybe think of their church community as, you know, the place to bring your your workplace problems or your labor struggles? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if I went to seminary or got into ministry, I can tell you how pastors or clergy are formed. I mean, just based on my limited experience, you know, even just from listening to sermons, Essentially, sermons are like spiritual self-help talks. Um, and that's kind of what people want. You know, people want like a way to make sense of suffering in life and deal with stress and what have you. And I think that's great. And we have tools to make that a powerful experience, whether it's music or prayer or what have you. And I do think it does great things. Or, or at its best, it, it's a step beyond that. And it's community help. Someone's stress. I'm going to edit your resume for you so you can help find a better job so you don't have to deal with that workplace stress. I'm going to give you financial you know, aid so you're not, so you have a little cushion so you can look for a new job. But it's still tied around how do I improve the life of this particular individual as opposed to thinking about how do I change the conditions of my congregant's work or life or housing such that not just my congregants' life would be better, but all their coworkers' lives would be better. And recognizing that just switching to another job might not necessarily solve the problem because this is a systemic issue. I mean, I think it just takes a political analysis, and I don't know if that's always like you know what seminaries train people to do. Yeah, I think uh, pretty clearly seminaries don't train people to do that political analysis. <laughs> um, maybe they should. Well, <laughs> it, you know, I was reading your article and I was reminded of this time when I was like, um, I was at my church and well, not my church now, a church I used to go to a long time ago. Okay. Anyways, I remember um, it was like after morning prayer. Uh, it was a very liturgical church. We did that kind of thing. And uh, a guy came in like off the street and was just like asking the pastors like, hey, I'm like really going through a hard time, like whatever. Um, you know, could you guys spare spare any money for me or whatever? And like the pastors being like sort of good 
good people generally, I guess. Like they did. They gave him money like on the spot, which is like nice. I think that's a great thing. But um, I guess I'm in your article. I'm struck just at the ways that like Christian churches are like ready to offer charity, but not ready to offer systemic situ like sy systemic fixes or something. And <laughs> it's such a weird thing, I guess, to th you know, to think it, charity, I guess, ends up being easy and fixing huge problems like, uh, uh, you know, um, a bad workplace or an exploitative situation with your boss is probably more difficult. But one thing that you point out that kind of helps make sense of some of that is the idea of unity and like how that um, prohibits Christians from, I think, getting involved in these sorts of struggles. Um, you note that some pastors or like Christian people just in general might feel that like strikes or even like starting a union are unchristian because they, um, you know, they they cause sort of like strife or division where it might not have been um, at least obviously there before or something. So could you help us think through that bit about unity a little bit? Like uh, what makes Christians so averse to to uh, uh, transgressing whatever unity is? I think this gets at some of the tensions um, on, on a super, I think it's two levels. On like a more surface level, uh, you know, strikes create a versus them dynamic and, you know, Christians are supposed to be one family or brotherly love or, you know, whatever thing we're supposed to be about. Um, and like, I guess strikes don't feel very Christian in some ways. But I think, and this is a point I made in church clarity, when people would accuse us of being, of sowing disunity in the church and saying, you're, you know, dividing churches based on clear or unclear or something like that. And I always thought that was so comical because I just felt all we were doing was revealing um, disunity. We were revealing inequality. We were, and just by revealing it, we were cast as the bad actors. So I kind of had that framework in mind when thinking about labor, and I, I happen to have read a fair amount about uh, Dorothy Day and her intervention in some of the um, uh, grave workers' strike here in New York City. And, you know, she's basically as, like, interpersonally Christian as you can get. But she, like, took the side of the workers because clearly there it was not a, you know, where both sides were, you know, bad, equally bad. Like, one side had a lot, lot less power than the other. And I think it goes back to, you know, the preferential option of the poor, what have you. Um, do we believe Jesus treated both sides equally? Well, probably in terms of like, he wasn't like an asshole necessarily all the time. You know, if you were nice to him, he would be nice to you, let's say. Um, but he definitely, I think, preferred and like tr spent more time and definitely spoke and tried to elevate one side over the other. Which it always would be, you know, the leper, um, the widow, the person who was outcast. Um, he, I think he showed a preference in that respect. So that, at least that is how I would think about respond to people who are like, oh, strikes are, you know, creating a system dynamic. I think Jesus sort of did. Um, but on a deeper level, I think that there is a way in which, and I struggle with this also even, uh, you know, as a leftist preacher, I guess I preach once a month, is I, I don't think there's a straight line between, you know, the Gospels and or the Bible and like socialism. I think there are passages that get us in that direction um but for the most part I, I don't know if the scriptures give us like a political philosophy of how to live today then they give us some values and like some cool ways of thinking about property and community and what they can do if, if anything i think it's maybe a bit more anarchist than socialist i don't think it necessarily comments a ton on the role of the state um and so i, I have to acknowledge that it's not a straight line it's not abc and that there is a bit of mystery a bit of a gap involved there and if I were to get on stage and just say, like, this is what Jesus says, Jesus says be a socialist, um, I think I would lose a bit of spiritual credibility. So all I can do is kind of orient people in that direction. 
um, and just acknowledge that they're reasonable Christians can interpret it differently. Um, but this is just my personal take. Um, so I'll be more candid in interviews like this, but I have to be more careful what I say in the pulpit because I don't want to fully collapse Christianity into a pol particular political program. So I, at the end of the day, I think I, I do appreciate the larger project of unity because I think it is what distinguishes in some ways um, churches from any other leftist organization, even if a church might have leftist ideals. But I think we just cannot let that unity get in the way of um, us helping and taking action for those who are like actually needed the most. Um, so, I mean, it's a fine balance. I, think, I don't think it's fully clear how to do it, but you know, we should err on one side more than the other. Yeah, I think that makes sense, right? It's a, it's a complicated thing. I mean, what I hear you saying here is something that I think we've, Dean and I have kind of like seen Christians who are socialists kind of struggle with for a long time, right? Like you don't want to um, reduce Christianity to like just being about socialism or something because it has to be about more than that too. You know, there's a lot of tensions there. So, I mean, it's cool to hear you work that out. Uh, the other thing that I, I heard you say that is really interesting, uh, you know, this thing about divisiveness and unity is so fascinating because people get mad at you for maybe explicating an exploitative situation or with church clarity, right? All you were doing were asking pastors uh, or church people, whoever, if their church had like, you know, these affirm like um, these policies around LGBTQ people or something, right? And it comes off, um, you know, you might get uh, lambasted as being um, a troublemaker or, <laughs> or divisive, or even in terms of labor, right? If you're on the side of a strike, um, you know, you, you ch chose to be on the side of workers or whatever, you're the divisive one, but really all you're doing is pointing out the problem that's already there. And uh, that comes through too with, you know, you mentioned when a, a congregant might come to you and ask you for prayer and they're saying like, you know, I'm really stressed. And once you dig in, you find out like, well, they're stressed for a really particular reason and it's, you know, workplace related or whatever. I, I don't know. It's just all really interesting to me that um, uh, so, some of this work of the church is really just kind of calling out the problems as they exist. And I think that's a pretty powerful thing to do. Yeah, hopefully, you know, I guess people call it the prophetic function of the church. I think it's a word that's a bit overused, but it is useful to bring that because I think the prophets were a bit divisive. They're, they were not treated very well by those in power. Um, but yeah. Yeah, it strikes me too that the way that you're talking about unity also helps think through some of the, um, I don't know what the right word is. Hypocrisy is not the right word, but just the like... Um, self-delusions that Christians have about ourselves. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's lots of them we have on the left too, but when I think about like uh, right-wing Christians um, accusing somebody of being divisive for whatever, standing on the side of workers or LGBT people or, or whoever it might be, um, you know, the biggest irony is that it's the, the appeal to unity that so many, especially more conservative Christians make is like profoundly divisive, which they're happy to say when it suits them, right? So they'll be like, yeah, we're being persecuted in the culture because we're like standing up for what we believe in. So it's like fine to be divisive if you happen to share those views, <laughs> but bad to be divisive if you happen to challenge those views. So the real question isn't really like unity or diversity or divisiveness, but sort of which unity or which divisiveness it seems. And I think the way that you frame it in terms of labor is, is really good, right? Like um, if you wanted to be a person for like an authentic kind of unity, like wouldn't you want to build that unity on the side of people who are already being cut off or something? So I guess my question to you is, you know, you work, you have this leadership position in a church, you have all this really great journalism experience, you do this work in the labor movement. 
what is it like to sort of build that unity, um, to build those kind of links of solidarity between Christian people, between labor, between uh, justice for queer folks? You know, how can we sort of contribute to um, building that kind of unity? Unity in terms of like a broad left-leaning unity, like people, like kind of general solidarity. Is what yeah, I guess. I guess what I mean is like Christians have this weird thing about unity that stops them from um, seeing inequalities, right? Uh, so like, how do we build the right kind of unity that is able to do something important? Yeah, you know, I, I'm trying to think, you know, the most concrete example I have is just with the particular experience of my church. Um, when we became LGBT affirming, we, I think, tried to tread that line between standing for something and at the same time being uni unified in some other stuff. And this rhetoric is not unique to us. We just happen to have our own take on it, um, which is that we said we will be LGBT affirming. There will be no discriminatory policy, um, but we will not require people to believe in our theology. So essentially, we, th we want to be united, I think, on the essentials and unity, not uniformity, I think, was the tagline. Um, so I think that's a tagline that conservative churches use as well. The distinction is that we said we want to make sure that unity does not mean that, you know, historically marginalized groups, in this case, LGBTQ people, um, have to pay a cost. So I think that's always a good question to ask. Like, in your, it's good to have unity. You know, we want I don't want to have a completely homogenous, everyone thinks the same, same identity group. I think that's what makes church kind of special. But the question is always, who is paying the cost of the unity? Um, sometimes costs have to be paid by certain groups and that trade-off, like, is that, is that really, that's a lot to ask of someone to constantly, for the sake of not wanting to disrupt the church, I can't like hold hands with my partner or something like that. Oh, I can't get married in the church because I don't want to cause division. I think that's like too much to ask for someone. That's asking people who are already oppressed to bear the sacrifice of unity for the whole church. I think it should be the other, other way around. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Man, that's such a... It's such a complicated thing, I, I imagine, to be in a leadership position in a church. And I'm glad I'm not in one, but I'm glad <laughs> that you are. <laughs> it seems like you've got a pretty good handle on it. Um, well, maybe we can turn for a minute to uh, a, a more like uh, practical application of some of this. So uh, your article, you know, is about why pastors should care about the labor movement and why they should be involved in like organizing and, and that kind of thing. Um, so if if there's a pastor that's out there right now listening to this podcast and they're like, wow. You're right. I should do that. Um, what would you say? Like, how would you say to get them started? Like, what are the first steps they should be doing within their own church? Like, what's uh, what do they need to be paying attention to when it comes to labor? And maybe how do they have those conversations with people? I think the, I think there are labor religion coalitions that exist in different cities in New York State. There's a, there is a labor religion coalition in New York State um, that um, organizes faith leaders to speak out on labor issues and stuff like that. We recently had there was a um, Brooklyn Friends School, a Quaker school, went on strike, um, and they and obviously it's like a strike within a Christian progressive private school. Um, and even though our church is not technically part of the coalition, um, part of me was like, you know, what? It, why don't I just show up there and lend my support? Um, if you happen to be uh, have a what I call a priest outfit or a pastor outfit, essentially like a little collar thing, magic all the best because then you can show up you know lending kind of the moral authority of your outfit to those on strike uh, and hold a sign you know something like that um that always goes a long way in my case i our church is pretty informal we don't have any formal priest outfits um but i was thinking about going there 
Uh, I didn't end up doing it because I had to write this article and then the strike got resolved like while I was writing it. Um, also the editor cut that part of the article. Um, but I, I think I would have at least tried to be like, you know, my skill is I can write, I can report. Let me maybe write a church blog post on it and help my congregation think through um, how to, you know, look at this labor strike as Christians. So I did that. We had a Theology Thursday segment, uh, 1.30 every Thursday where we go live. And one of the segments I did, um, usually we were just talking about like, what is hell? You know, something like that for like 15 minutes. But this time there will happen to be a uh, uh, a rent strike, sort of, um, really more occupation of a building where the landlord was illegally and I think immorally trying to evict people in the middle of a pandemic and was doing really terrible things, like beyond even just like standard bad landlord things. Um, and so a bunch of people, one of the neighborhood organizations, Flatbush for Equality, organized local residents to like stand watch essentially in the front yard of the brownstone so that if the landlord came, they could literally physically block him from entering, him and his wife and his kids. Apparently they're like real douches. They're like half an eco-friendly um, business, I don't know, yoga studios, the type. Um, the, <laughs> so, and so I went there and I was like, how can, you know, I just like literally was off my camera. I put it on selfie mode. I was like, so this is what's happening. This is happening at, you know, this street. If you're nearby and you're living here, like, please come and support, um, those who are standing guard. And I was like trying to think like, is there a Bible verse I can use or something to kind of make this Christian? Uh, and oftentimes that is like literally my thought process behind most sermons. Um, <laughs> but and I, I realized, you know, I, there's no, like, story necessary of a landlord evicting tenants in the Bible. Um, but I, I was thinking about how one of the powerful things that these, um, I'm going to just call them protesters, I don't know what the right word is, did was the landlord tried to come in the middle of the night, like at midnight, and they were standing guard and they were able to, like, videotape it happening and then also barricade him from entering him. And the, but... I thought it was so interesting that the landlord chose to come at night um, away from daylight when people would be watching. So then I just thought about how like the Roman soldiers came and they chose to arrest Jesus at night when the crowds were not there. Um, and I talked about, so in the videos, like 10, 15 minutes, I talked about the importance of being on solidarity. It's not just like a symbolism, like moral support. It also is literally to stand guard through the night um, because that's when like, people who are ashamed of the behavior like to like strike so you know i don't know stuff like that and also like be friends with your local labor organizers learn what strikes are happening in your city um like in new york city for instance verizon was on a big strike for a few weeks there are a few years um home health attendants have been on strike against like a 24-hour workday without pay um like I, you just kind of generally have a pulse on what strikes are happening who is organizing that what labor issues are happening, um, like delivery workers here in New York City are facing a lot of issues around like their bikes um, being like overly policed by the police. That's something you can get involved in. And just once you figure out what the campaigns are and the organizers are like, you know, I know Matt, you're working for like Bite for 15, fast food. Um, and then just connect with the organizers. They're always like love to talk to ministers because ministers represent a congregation. Uh, and I think that's a good place to start.
So that was much longer than than I anticipated. I kind of for, got carried away. <laughs> no, it's really good. It's a it's a it's a good list of things to get into. It's true if you're a if you're a pastor of a church and you just call up your local uh, you know your union or whatever or a labor organizing um, organization whatever it might be, uh, tell them yeah tell them you're a pastor and they'll they'll put you on a list and they'll call you whenever there's a strike and you can come right out. <laughs> yep. 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 Um, I love uh, that response to Sarah because it's like, uh, I don't know, usually we ask people a similar kind of question. Like a question we always ask people in the Magnificast is, you know, how do you, like, what what works? How do you, like, convince a Christian to, you know, whatever, show up for labor or for other people? Um, but I love that your response is like, uh, I don't know, like, go out and get in the street. And then, like, once you're there, try to figure out if there's a Bible verse. Like, <laughs> I feel like there's something really intuitively right about that, you know, like, it's not like being cynical or saying like, I don't know, the Bible's kind of irrelevant, but it's rather, you know, you you have this intuition that uh, if you get out in the streets, like, you know, it'll come to you at some point because that is in deep continuity with what it means to be a Christian in the world. And I think that, like, that is exactly the right way to be thinking about this stuff. And I'm going to be thinking about that anecdote for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> just just pray and the verse will come. You know, it's a version of that, basically. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Um, so, yeah, maybe you could uh, say a little bit more, too, about uh, the other um, facets of religion and labor organizing that you do. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you do this work with the Religion and Socialism Working Group in the DSA. Um, we uh, appreciate the DSA for sure. Uh, what's going on with that working group? I think we asked you about this when you were on the show last time, but it's always good to catch up. Um, what is that group in the DSA? Like, what's its function? And uh, what do you do in it? Yeah, I mean, I think unlike other groups, it, it is mostly focused on essentially like you might classify as political education or religious education because we're still at the stage of like we exist, you know, <laughs> as a thing, mm -hmm. um, as opposed to like now let's organize churches to go do X, Y, Z. Um, the, the truth is there are interfaith organizers, um, faith organizers. I mentioned the Labor Religion Coalition that already do that work a little bit. Not so necessary with a leftist angle, um, but still. So I, so, you know, part of it is just a function of who's willing to do what and volunteer based stuff like that. Um, but we are still, I think, pretty much focused on just on education with through our religious socialism blog um, and monthly webinars that are led by Reverend Andrew Wilkes, who I recommend getting in podcast if you haven't had him already. Um, he's really cool and smart. Um, Doing, he's a minister and studied um, at Princeton Seminary and is doing his PhD at CUNY and writes a lot on Martin Luther King and is talks about black liberation and, um, you know, how socialism fits within that. And he's not, he'll, he will be explicit, not just anti-capitalism, but socialism specifically. He leads a church here in Brooklyn. So he leads his monthly webinars with faith leaders. We had Linda Sarsour on. We had Liz Theo Harris from Poor People's Campaign. Um, I just did a short radio segment with Revolutions Per Minute, which is New York City's DSA's radio show, just to talk about religion and socialism. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I wish I could say there was more we were doing, but that whole minus thing is it. But we have picked up enough steam. I think I, I, this might be like rumor me still, but one of our most consistent writers for the Religious Socialism blog, Fran Quigley, who's actually like a law professor. It's unclear. I don't know how he does everything. But he, a oh, medical doctor, one of those, you know, um, apparently we're, there's a book that will be coming out on religious socialism. And a lot of the articles he's been writing for our blog will like 
you know, be featured in it. And I was actually asked to provide a photo of myself, but I, I don't know. I, I need, it needs to be really high resolution. <laughs> I don't know how to get, get that. Um, so I, you know, hopefully by just like, you know, Christians are pretty good at like talking, creating content and education um, that will kind of stir something up. But for the most part, I think a lot of the people in the group, their organizing happens in other branches. So they might be involved in labor and immigration, what have you. And religious and socialism kind of operates the way a church kind of operates. Like it's a space of spiritual sustenance, formation, content, and you go out and like do the work, so to speak. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I've uh, I've been a part of, I guess, a few of the the uh, the Zooms and just kind of seen like the, the Facebook Live stuff too that they've been doing. It's a really neat thing. If you're in the DSA, it's uh, definitely something worth checking out. How do people get involved with religion, socialism, working group? I, I remember I signed up for an email at some point. How do you get on board with that, though? If you go to religioussocialism.org, I want to say. I also am, I don't know why it's called religious socialism as opposed to like religion and socialism, but whatever. Um, religious social and just, you can just enter your email address and oh, you get follows on social and what have you. Um, I think I would love to see our organization get to the place where we were kind of doing organizing. It's tough when you have like, you know, poor people's campaign technically is doing a bit of that. So like, you know, they're not explicitly socialist, but obviously they're talking about poor people and there's some ways in which they functionally would do pretty similar things to what we would do. Um, but yeah, I hope that at some point we can get, um, to a place where we're organizing congregations. I think it's tough when you, you know, the people, I, I haven't been in the meeting in a while, to be quite honest, but when I was in meetings, I think a lot of people who were there were like rediscovering faith for their second time as an adult, you know, or they were religious, but like not super tied to institution. And it's hard to organize if you're not tied to institution. Um, Cause that's, you need to draw from a community at the very least to organize. And if you're just kind of like, you and Jesus by yourself. There's no one really to organize beyond like your social media <laughs> platform, I guess. Yeah, um, <laughs> I understand that. Well, I mean, I think the political education um, arm of it is is pretty worthwhile too. I think that's cool. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, it would be neat if uh, if folks were able to get out into organizations and and preach the other good news, I guess. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> maybe maybe they'll get there. Who knows? Yeah, I have to think about how to implement it in my in my church. So. I'm still noodling on it and figure out the best best thing to do for this coming year. It's one of my New Year's resolutions. Is to uh, figure out how to get your church organized in the uh, the DSA? Not not DSA per se. I think I think that might be a little. My church is like basically center left, but um, just like I, I think one of my I think we're on track to like identify a community partner that we can do like some real organizing with, and that would be great. And we've mm. done that a little bit here and there. Um, but I, I want to ex explicitly start maybe putting this out there will help it happen, uh, like a Christian leftist group, just to form like connections and community. I think the interesting thing about church is that you can organize people to do like quote unquote leftist organizing, so to speak, whether it's labor, decriminalization of, of things or, you know, uh, abolition of police without necessarily using political ideology to do that because you can kind of do it through like christian ideology or christian words or christian values but I, I do think it would be helpful to have a specific group that's dedicated just to political radical political education and learning and from that form a core base by which then they can like do cool things in the church but i first have to develop that team and that base um because if you know if i'm just beating a one person drum even if i do a great sermon you know that it only goes so far i need to have like 
volunteers and people who are willing to kind of carry it for it. <laughs> that sounds pretty cool. I mean, think of all the very boring things that your that churches like get people to do, like be like <laughs> ushers and greeters. Like it seems like doing doing cool socialist stuff seems like a, a lot more exciting than any of that. So uh, <laughs> it seems like it shouldn't be a hard sell. <laughs> I hope so. Um, it might be. I have to make sure like it's clear. Um, the you know, pastors and everyone on staff is cool with it, but I think I think there will be. But yeah. Yeah, it's really neat, though, to just think about the church as a place that can organize, you know, like something that Matt and I found doing this podcast for a long time now is historically, there are so many wild examples of church congregations that basically like that's the life of the church for them, you know, back in like the 1930s and 40s was like, yeah, we're a church, which means that we like go out to the picket line together. And that's like what it means to do this whole thing. Um, And it's like so hard to imagine that kind of spiritual life for me at least being a person who lives in 2020 who was born in you know 1990 like when the soviet union was collapsing (laughs) like it's just like an extremely different world that we've all inherited and uh yeah i mean trying to discover what it means to to uh, organize together as people of faith is such a like unique opportunity and obviously i think more more and more important it seems like I was going to say, I think what I was just talking to a, so actually someone in my church who who I think listens to you all, um, which I was very excited about. And he's a newcomer to our church. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, you like know is like, you know, co- certain code language. Um, and he was like, so, <laughs> you know, he, we talk about like what a church is really good at. And we're really good at like the bread and butter of like relationship building and like developing, getting men to be vulnerable with each other, you know, like stuff like that, like small group Bible study. And like certain kind of like content vision stuff. And, you know, we're going back and forth as to like, you know, if we think about church as a political project, how much is it important to just like, like whatever that project looks like, I think it will be really important to capitalize on what the church does do well and the strengths. And which is that, that kind of relationship building, content, reading, discussion type thing. And from that, I think adding on a political action to that, I think makes sense but i think it has to start from that foundation um which i think i would think most i'm, I'm not I've never been an organizer but i think most organizers might agree with those tenets more broadly speaking and i think it's not too different in a church context yeah i mean like the history of the left is so fascinating in that way too right like um uh, again at like the turn of the last century and stuff like um labor unions had things like game nights and like choirs like singing choirs and choruses and stuff like they basically looked like churches right just a bunch of people getting together and doing stuff and that's what binds people together is like those moments in you know in the church it's like those moments in the bible study or like volunteering to show up just because you want to sing some christmas carols or whatever that builds a certain bond that helps you maybe uh do some bigger things with one another um yeah i mean uh maybe we could talk a little bit more about that too like what is it like to think about being a, a Christian person, a socialist person, uh, lots of other kinds of things too, but those two in particular, a Christian socialist um, in 2020, thinking through like how to sort of live the gospel in the time that we're in, like, you know, capitalism is getting worse and worse. Like we're in the midst of all kinds of uh, pretty wild global changes. Like, I don't know, you're, you're a person who preaches sermons and I'm not, so I'm asking you, uh, what, you know, what is the meaning of the gospel in a world that is just like riddled with an injustice um, that we can respond to in that way that you're describing? Well, I, don't, I feel like very, this is a question for God. I, I don't know if I, mere human, mere <laughs> mortal can answer. Um, you know, 
I think I I ultimately think about it less in terms of what is the gospel uh, and more about what is church, if that makes sense. I think about religion more sociologically, I think, than theologically at this stage in my life. Although I do do theology for like sermon purposes, but I do that insofar as to accomplish a sociological function, um, which is I want people to like love their neighbor and, you know, love, love God and love themselves and like act. Um, and so, but the thing is like, it really does depend if I'm preaching to or speaking with a ministering to congregation full of like young professionals who work in tech and advertising and like, or maybe our artists or something like that versus like people who understand themselves as working class and part of the part of labor um i don't i would i would not say our congregation is at that level of general consciousness um like for us to even like talk about race talk about black lives matter is already like you know that's like good job you know we're like patting ourselves on the back for that and i think that's not to say that that is an intermediate step by any means um but i think figure out how to turn how to uh like go from an identity-based conversation to it's like coupling that with um you know like larger power demands and systems demands i think it's tricky um because i think sometimes people we get the feedback we're too political in our sermons we we're too social justice people just want you know a kind of self-help type thing um which i think is important too and find the right balance between like essentially how to provide immediate relief for people who are suffering today under like capitalism, but also how to like organize and galvanize them to like take action. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's a tough balance to kind of strike in the church. And I think ultimately the answer has to go like be to be beyond sermons. It has to be like what happens post-sermon, what happens in a small group, what happens, you know, as the follow-up mechanism from that. And there, hopefully from there, um, something like the good news can emerge something like you know the the heavenly community the beloved community can emerge i think that's great i mean what a what a like extremely healthy view of church to think of yourself not as the most important part of it <laughs> you know like <laughs> uh uh the the model of church i guess that i come from like out of evangelicalism it's like all about a celebrity pastor and like they're they're the whole reason you're there right is just because this person's going to tell you some kind of news that you'd you just wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. But I think, um, like you said, looking at it sociologically, though, makes some sense, right? It's about building this whole community of people um, with certain types of resiliencies and certain types of expression of solidarity that uh, makes everyone stronger as a community and uh, helps you do that, like, that good work that you're supposed to be doing as a church anyways. Um, man, it's so cool, Sarah. <laughs> I like listening to you talk about church. I think you got it right. Um, that's what I'm here to say. <laughs> Thank you. I kind of hope my congregants don't listen <laughs> Uh, maybe I wouldn't share. I'm not sharing on Facebook for sure. Maybe I'll, sh- I'll probably share it on Twitter. Um, you know, because part of it is like, it's not Wizard of Oz type stuff, but part of it is that you, how am I going to put this correctly? My pastor said this to me correctly, and it's been really helpful, which is that my job is not to tell my congregants what I believe per se. My job is to help them believe and help them believe hopefully in the right things that can produce the right actions in the world. But ultimately, I think I see religion and church at large as like a, a different sets of tools and rituals and metaphors and social gatherings, you know, sociological gatherings, so to speak, that you can orient in a certain direction. Um, so I think if pastors just kind of were clear on that and hopefully just honest about that, I think at the end of the day, 
uh, it would save some pastors some existential crises and it can make their job a bit clearer. Uh, yeah, I feel like, too, um, there are pastors in my life, which if they had uh, learned that lesson, it probably would have helped me believe a little bit better as well. Because <laughs> um, you can like Christianity turns people off uh, oftentimes when uh, pastors strike that opposite disposition, right, where they're sort of telling you what to believe and what they believe. And it's like, well. I'm not so sure about that, but I do keep coming here because I do like that church lady's cookies, and that's why I'm here. Like, I don't know. I guess the the way they, yeah, you're describing it as a way that's just sort of more honest and true to life anyway. Like, the beliefs are sort of secondary to that, that experience of being bonded in one way or another. Yep, yep. So, and, you know, I think when church does it best that it's able to be a really cool mutual aid type community, and the question is like, you know, how, can we take that a step further? But it's just like one step at a time. Like we're at a stage in our church where we're like getting to like, okay, radical distribution of wealth. How do we think about that a bit more in a pandemic? Um, but it's just internal. Uh, and then getting them to think about it lar- more largely than that and taking action on that is like the next step. Yeah, that's great. Well, you heard it here for, first, folks. Um, Sarah News, she's revolutionizing the church by telling us how to do it right. Uh, <laughs> um, but the way to do it right is just to show up and be nice to each other and uh, get out in the streets. And I think that's pretty good advice. Um, Sarah, for people who want to follow you some more, figure out your writing, uh, follow who you are, where can they find you? Uh, I, I guess... Twitter is probably easiest. Um, I just I think it'll be in the show notes, but uh, Sarah New, S-A-R-H-N-G-U. And then I think I have a website where I just put all my writing together so it's easy to find. And that's in the Twitter bio or something like that. Or sarahnew.com, that works too. Great. And anything else you want to plug? Can people like show up to your Zoom church? Do you not want people to show up to your Zoom church? What's it like? Uh, what? Do you, anything else you want to sort of throw out there at the end here? I would definitely super welcome any Christian leftists who want to join my church and start my Christian leftist small group. Um, please reach out to me <laughs> so we can not infiltrate the church, but, you know, like kind of like that a little bit. Um, there's only, you know, there's only so much I can do just even as someone on staff and preaching. I, I, I need people to help. So, yes, please come join my church. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, well, Sarah, thanks so much for being with us and sharing us about so sharing with us about so much stuff from your your very cool, extremely awesome communist aunt to uh, uh, labor organizing in the church and religious socialism. It's always good to have you back, and um, I'm sure we'll have you back again sometime down the line. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for I always appreciate learning whatever labor history you have morsels you have to share. It's been it's always a learn great to learn from you and Matt as well. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you should definitely follow Sarah New and read all the very good things that she is writing. Uh, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. If you do that, you'll find another secret podcast called The Lock-In, where we make some uh, extremely cringy bad jokes and also talk about current events. Um, you can find us on Twitter at The Magnificast. You can email us at themagnificast at gmail.com. Our music is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. 
There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still.